very happy to welcome to Forward Guidance, Spencer Jacob, the author of The Revolution That Wasn't, GameStop, Reddit, and the Fleecing of Small Investors. Spencer, great to have you here. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, Jack. Your day job is through the editor of Heard on the Street for uh, the Wall Street Journal, a uh, beloved part, part of the paper. So I just want to ask, the fleecing of small investors, that, that in the title in your book, how bad is it? With the benefit of hindsight, two and a half years, how bad was the fleecing? Why do you call it a fleecing? Because temporarily, you know, retail investors made a lot of money, at least that's the narrative. And right. who did the fleecing? Yeah, so fleecing is is probably a, a rather strong word, but it happens all too frequently on Wall Street, where you know the just the, the way that the, the whole system of incentives is, is set up, it's a way of transferring money from the inexperienced to the experienced, from the the small investors to large institutions, and this whole episode, the the meme stock squeeze and the things that came before it and came after it were very enriching for Wall Street and not very enriching for individual investors. And th there are people who say, and I get a, a ton of hate mail, Jack, you know, people saying, well, I made money, you know, or I know someone who made money. Of course, they're individuals who, who did very well. You know, you get in at the right place at the right time, even just through dumb luck, you can make money in any sort of financial calamity. But writ large, Wall Street made a, a ton of money off this. And that that's not the narrative certainly that initially emerged, even in the Wall Street Journal. I think the, the kind of the first draft of history is written by journalists, and the first draft is really what people remember. There's a movie that just debuted this week called Dumb Money, mm -hmm. which exactly kind of repeats that. And that's the kind of the fun story is that they pulled one over on Wall Street, but they really didn't. I mean, Wall Street is made up of lots and lots of people, and most of the people on Wall Street aren't really risking their own money, and they're not even risking other people's money necessarily. They're just kind of doing transactions, and they're very, very happy to see a bunch of new people show up who have funny ideas about stuff. I haven't seen the new movie, but I saw a documentary on HBO, and I have to say from the an editorial point of view, the, the, a lot of the parts, the editing, the music was, was great, but... That that just typified the narrative, and and they interviewed someone who was you know really down on his luck. I think maybe living out of his car, and they showed him a picture of him on Robinhood buying GameStop for like four hundred bucks, and he said, "I just screwed over Wall Street." And I, I I tried very hard to not turn it off, I, and I succeeded. I think I watched the entire thing, but mm -hmm. the, the narrative that the retail investors were screwing over Wall Street, it was true for maybe four days. Mm -hmm. uh, my question is, was it ever true? The, the narrative that the, uh, the retail investors screwed over Wall Street and at last they benefited at the expense of, of Wall Street, you know, just reading your book. There's a Mark Cuban tweet saying something like, thank God at last the hedge funds, instead of being uh, screwed over by high frequency trading, retail investors are flipping the tables. What's wrong with that? That's what got me, as I'll admit, that's what initially, and I, I'm talking initially in the first half hour, got me very excited about this. I have three sons. So, you know, GameStop, for those who are, are unaware, we're living on Mars, you know, was the, the company that was at the center of all this. There are other meme stocks, but that's the sort of the OG uh, meme stock. And it's it's a retailer of video games, a kind of a rapidly shrinking one, already was shrinking at the, at the time. I've got three sons. My oldest son is 24. My youngest is 17. So this sort of, you know, I've been going to GameStop, almost the whole history of GameStop, driving them there uh, and, and whatnot. Uh, I don't anymore because it's there isn't one near here, but I was very familiar with the sort of the, the challenged nature of its business during this kind of era of digitized everything. You know, it's kind of like Blockbuster 
five years before Blockbuster went bust because of, of Netflix. But one of my sons uh, who was home from college because of uh, COVID said, Dad, are you going to write something about GameStop? And I why would I do that? I, and I took a look and I saw how much it was up the last few days. This is before articles had begun to appear. And uh, he was on this forum on Reddit and some of his friends were, and some of his friends were participating in this squeeze. So I started to read it and I immediately was just gobsmacked because what I saw unfolding was something that had not really happened in a long, long time legally on Wall Street, which is a corner or an attempted corner where you you attempt to basically use the markets to force someone to pay almost any price, an unlimited price to buy back shares that they have shorted. And that's what was they were trying to do. And that's what I found so amazing that these guys using social media, because Jack, if you and I both had hedge funds and we got together and we found out that a third hedge fund was really short some stock and we got together and maybe got some other funds together in a, a smoke-filled room and tried to squeeze that fund, that, that would be illegal. That, that has been illegal since the security laws were rewritten in the 1930s, right? It used to happen prior to that very frequently, but you can't do that. But that's what they were doing, and they were doing it quite legally because they were doing it way out in the open at a place that no one on Wall Street bothered to check, which was this Reddit message board, because they just didn't take it seriously. And so that's what I found amazing. And for about a half hour, I thought like they're flipping the script on these guys. Then I realized like they're not going to succeed in this this corner. And what they're they're going to do, and it played out over the next week or so, is it just went higher and higher and higher and sucked in more people. Millions of people literally jumped on the bandwagon and were were sort of just enriching brokers and market makers and and not necessarily themselves. Maybe the very the people who were cynical who got out early made a bit of money, but the people the majority of people who were drawn in because they felt they were part of a movement just got left holding the bag. And maybe some of them didn't care about the money. I think some of them did not, although that's it's yeah. a kind of a, a myth that they just don't care about the money. I think most people, even if it's a small amount of money, you know, these were not wealthy people. They, they missed the money that they saw evaporate when this, the air came out of this thing. So it was true for a while that the hedge funds who were short the stock were screwed and they did get cornered because what percentage of the stock was was sold short it was o- over 100 correct you can, yeah. you can give numbers and then also some they call themselves apes say that, that is the sign that the market is manipulated but what do you say to that yeah in gamestop specifically it was in excess of 140 percent of the free float was sold short which sounds like it should be impossible right i mean you can only you have to borrow a stock locate a borrow to sell a stock short so how can you know, you have 140% short. Well, it, it can happen. It does happen. It's not just a matter of clerical errors. I mean, the rules have changed on Wall Street to make short selling kind of much more kind of fit within the rules and you have much less, you know, so-called naked shorting. But you have something called rehypothecation, which allows this to happen. Whereas let, let's say you wanted to, to short a stock. So you go to your broker, your prime broker and say, I, I want to, to locate shares to short. And they say, okay, we have the shares and then you sell it without owning it. But you sold it to someone who's unaware of the origin of their stock. They have it in their brokerage account. And then that broker might also lend the stock out to short because they're not aware that it's been sold out, that it's already been lent out once. So it does happen. It's nothing sinister. It's not a plot, but it it is an extreme case. And Uh so- Really, I mean, like I, I'm shedding no tears for Gabe, Gabe Plotkin and these other hedge fund managers 
who lost a lot of money. He lost something like $7 billion of his investors' money in this whole episode, which was, which was crazy. But they were not doing anything illegal. You know, he actually wasn't even all that short. I mean, his his fund is not a short selling fund. Short sellers anyway are, are vilified. You know, the, he he had adopted the mo- more typical strategy on Wall Street, which is to be net long and then to have some shorts to enhance your position. So, you know, maybe he looked at rightly at at GameStop, which was a position that he opened when his fund opened many years before that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that GameStop is a loser. Other stocks, maybe Bed Bath and Beyond, or not Bed Bath and Beyond, sorry, Best Buy or something like that, is in a similar category. But I think they have the right strategy. It's a winning company, and GameStop is a losing company. So I'm going to not just like a regular mutual fund, you know, put my shareholders or my investors' money into that good company. I'm going to enhance it, basically borrow money by also selling short some dud, but but closely related company in terms of being in the same industry and then use the, those excess funds as leverage. And that's why things unwind so quickly. It's, it's, it's done by even mutual funds sometimes engage in that strategy, but hedge funds in particular. And they're not out to destroy a company. You know, you can't destroy a company by selling its stock short. It's, it's just a, a complete myth, you know, and yeah. So I, I so that is t- totally untrue that short sellers can can destroy a company. A company performing poorly makes short sellers money, but they they have no control over the the, the business of the thing. The thing, and also it just its decks are stacked against the short sellers because stocks go up over time, and right. they have to borrow it. The most they can make is is a hundred percent, and they could get squeezed. And so, if you have a stock that has sixty percent of it is sold short. Odds are it has some issues that professional in- investors, you know, people who are doing a lot of work on this stuff are are very worried about. With the benefit of hi- hindsight, you know, I mean, a GameStop sh- being 140% short suite, that seems like horrible risk management. And you right. said it's not sinister that something could be rehypothecated and a stock should short for more than 100%. But I would say maybe is it not a good thing? Maybe there should be some regulations. I mean, a lot a lot of in your book, you, you call for, for some regulations to sort right. of tame the animal spirits of the market. Maybe that would be a good thing to say, hey, if something is seventy percent sold short, that you know, no, no more short sales or or something like that. Yeah, I mean, you know, the 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 only proposals that really have come out of this, and nothing, not much has been enacted, have specifically been aimed at at short sellers because that's what always happens when when there's a crisis, either during or or after a crisis, whether it's you know 08 or you know or the flash crash or whatever. Is short sellers are are you know, very easy to to vilify. So in terms of, you know, when politicians and regulators who are, you know, were hired by politicians, you know, get, you know, sort of are fighting the last war, basically, that that's typically the group that they'll go after. I mean, short sellers, you know, you can go back to the beginning of stock exchanges in the, the 1600s in the Netherlands. And, you know, even then, you know, there were, you know, campaigns and, you know, and, you know, a- actual kind of punitive actions taken against short sellers because it's seen as something that's anathema to everyone else. But short selling is something that's a, unfortunately, it's a vital part of of how markets work. Short sellers provide liquidity to the market because when you have a stock, you have to be able to express, you have to do do more than just vote for or abstain, right? You can buy a stock or you can say, I don't really like that stock. I'm not going to own it. But what short sellers do is they take the no vote. They say, not only do I not want to buy the stock, I think that it's going to go down. And, you know, many stocks are, are, either overvalued or perhaps even outright frauds like Enron. And so short sellers provide uh, a vital function, not that they're angels, 
but you know, having them continue to operate is good. Now, 140% was horrible risk management. Think about though, if you're Gabe Plotkin, Gabe Plotkin's risk manager, and you're like, Gabe, you know, this stock is 143% sold short. Maybe you better be careful. Yeah, he should have been careful. On the other hand, that this this was such a I don't know what sigma event this would be, you know, some 15 sigma event because never has has a company this troubled gone up this much. It was a completely kind of manufactured crisis in that sense, right? Because he he you know, you, you could have had something happen, some really good news for GameStop or someone comes out and and buys it or whatever Ryan Cohn comes out and says I'm paying 100% premium and buying the stock and it would be a really bad day for his fund. But you're not going to have the thing go from, you know, $2 to $483, you know, from anything normal happening, right? It, it, it only happened because, you know, you had this concerted effort that really kind of built upon itself that was discussed very openly on these, these message boards. That's why I found it so incredible. I wrote an email right away to the acquisitions editor at Portfolio, an imprint of at Penguin Random House, and like, oh, I haven't heard about that. Do you have a proposal? Like, no, this is happening now. It's going to be happening now. And and once I had a, a day or two to think about it, I, I kind of saw it for what it was, which is really a kind of a cautionary tale, but an incredible story too. So I, I think I think you're saying this wouldn't have happened if folks on Reddit, Wall Street Bets, hadn't acted in a coordinated way to pump the the, the price up, and right. you know, then influencers like Elon Musk jumped on the bandwagon and we just fell out of control. You know, we, right. we both know the story. But couldn't you also say it wouldn't have happened if a stock was sold 140 percent short? I mean, that that is a quite a rare instance. And, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was the dry kindling, you know, there. And then, you know, you had the dry kindling, you could throw a match on it. But what they did was like they, they threw like some gasoline and a match and some uranium and some nitroglycerin and some whatever, like, you know, they, 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 they brought a lot more to the fire. I mean, I'm not saying that anyone is is at fault. Gabe Plotkin certainly is at fault for allowing it to happen. He, you know, should have, have lost some money, you know, but losing the amount of money that that he lost and having this turn into this sort of the media and political event that it that it did was only made possible by the confluence of several things and that's what i find so interesting about this is that you know you, you all these things had to happen really within the the period of of several months to to make this whole episode possible you know and then it was a conscious act because people saw that the hedge funds were vulnerable and they discussed it openly they didn't do anything illegal they discussed it openly in a forum that the hedge funds could read. As a matter of fact, they I know that they did read it. And I know they they definitely do read it now. You know, they they follow these message boards very closely. They pay people to do it or they have software that does it today. But I mean they, you know, they're paying a lot of attention today, but they were just not taking this group seriously. Uh, and they should have. Yeah. And I think the the narrative of who the victims are and who the perpetrators are is that hedge funds and and Wall Street, and again, that phrase Wall Street can mean mm-hmm. you know, different things, but people group it together, conspired to screw over retail when the squeeze already happened. Retail mm-hmm. Wall Street bets had outsmarted the crowd. It went from you know four bucks to 40 bucks to 100 bucks to, I believe, as, as high as over $400. And mm-hmm. then the tell us what happened. What was it? In the middle of the week, something that really mm-hmm. slowed down the momentum. What, what happened? Yeah. So what happened is that there was one broker in particular. Uh, Robinhood, which was the sort of the, the preferred broker. You know, if you drew a Venn diagram of people who are on Wall Street bets, the kind of YOLO traders and customers of Robinhood, 
there was a tremendous amount, not 100%, but a tremendous amount of, of overlap. You had a lot of people with small accounts and you had, for example, just in one day, you had a million, a million accounts opened on, on Robinhood during the, this episode. So you had tremendous growth in the number of accounts. Robinhood allowed you, well, every, every broker enacted this eventually because they kind of threw on the towel in, in late 2019, every discount broker, Fidelity, Ameritrade, E-Trade, what have you, but they were the ones who pioneered it, allowing people to trade for free. It's not really for free. We can discuss that, mm-hmm. but they allowed people to trade for no commission. And everyone else kind of threw in the towel. But they had captured this young cohort. And they did it through an app that was very addictive that that is is really is, is an elegant thing, very much, and it's not a coincidence, resembles the apps for things like DraftKings, these daily fantasy sports apps that young men in particular had on their phones, where it it really kind of stokes this FOMO effect. It's very intuitive, very, very easy to trade. Very, you know, it, it, There's no friction in the app. That's what you really want. You want people not to have to, to do a lot of work to, to roll the dice, you know, metaphorically or literally, right, when they're gambling. And Robinhood was doing very, very well, but they were contacted by the clearinghouse. You know, brokers have a, have a clearinghouse, and the clearinghouse- This is in late January, when the stock is at $200, $400, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, it was it was the January twenty fifth was the the Monday. So this was the the the, the t- overnight the twenty eighth middle of the night in in California. They got a call from the clearinghouse saying, "Listen, you're going to have to come up with with three billion dollars of of collateral in order to you know kind of cover the variance on on these trades because what you have is is basically three, four, five stocks that all the the meme stocks. It wasn't just GameStop by that point. It was a bunch of stocks that all had you know this kind of heavy short interest." Kind of loser status in 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 common, and had seen a, a surge in price and a surge in activity. All these guys, they're all long, so they're all taking the same part of the trade. A lot of them are using options, uh, call options, in order to to trade this thing. And by using call options, what they were doing is sort of it wasn't just individuals who owned the stocks; it was a bunch of of options dealers. So you, the, if you you look at what was discussed on these boards, they're saying if you really want a lot of bang for your buck, instead of buying the stock, what you have to do is get permission to trade options and buy out of the money, uh, short dated call options. Because if you understand the the math behind Black Shoals, that is the thing that that creates the most hedging on the other side. So if you're an options dealer, you don't care. You're just doing business. You're just transacting. But if someone shows up and it's a $10 stock and they say like, okay, I'm going to buy a $15 call option for this thing in two days. Well, the odds of that thing going to $15 are infinitesimal for a normal stock, unless it's just a crazily volatile stock. Even then, right? It's not going to go up 50% in two days, but you'll take that money. You'll take that person's money and you'll, you know, you won't necessarily hedge it right away. But as it, if it starts to rise and then it gets to $14 and $15 and $16, then you have to buy the stock as a hedge and you have a lot of money. So this person put down pennies and you're putting down dollars and tens Uh of of dollars in response to their bet that was initially worth pennies. And so it's like a, it's, it's like a nuclear weapon. And, and they understood and they were openly discussing it, that that's how you can get much more bang for the buck. And so there was so much money betting on the same side of this handful of stocks that the clearinghouse said, if this reverses, You've basically you've you've loaned a bunch of margin to these people. You've allowed people to open accounts without actually transferring the money to you because you had a bunch of people opening accounts just that week. And Robinhood basically, in order to to make things very viral and addictive, 
you could just show up. You could be sitting in a, and I hate to stereotype, but I will, you know, sitting in a dorm room, you know, late at night, you know, doing bong hits with your buddy and be like, dude, I've got a, a Robinhood app and like, check it out. And if you open a Robinhood account, I get a free trade and you get a free trade. You, I, I get a free stock and you get a free stock. And it's like a sweepstake. I don't even know what stock it is. It could be, could be Tesla, which is worth a lot more money than you put down. All you have to do is put like 20 bucks down and you open an account. And you can trade right away. And Robinhood would allow you to do that because as soon as you initiated the transfer, they were like, okay, your money is going to arrive in a couple of days. You're good. You can trade right away. Of course they want you to trade right away because you're sitting in the dorm room doing the bong hit with your buddy. And the, you know, the idea is going to be out of your head. You're going to be on to the next thing in, in three days when the money settles. So, 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 so the reason that, let's just say, Schwab or Interactive Brokers or Morgan Stanley – the reason that they didn't have to halt trading, although maybe some did, you, you tell me, is because why? Because they weren't, their clients weren't using as much margin. In other words, if everyone had done the exact same thing, but on Robinhood, but they had bought the short dated call options and they bought uh, a Robinhood, excuse me, GameStop, using their own money that the funded account instead of margin, would this not have happened? Is it the margin? Specific? And by the way, for folks, you know, margin means borrowed money. It's not specifically that because because you know there's a settlement period for for stocks right you the stocks don't don't settle right away so you you pay for it a a couple of days later you don't know you can't look into the accounts of that you know if someone bought a, a, a stock and then the value collapses which did happen in, in this case it, we will discuss the what kind of accelerated it happening right but it it did happen you knew it was going to happen you know this thing didn't go from like two to four to four hundred and eighty three dollars without the, the possibility of a serious reversal, then you you might basically be be sitting on a loss. If you had just opened an account or you were a person with a very small amount of, of, of cash and securities in his or her account, then it was quite likely that you're just going, going to walk away. You're going to like, you you can come after me for the money, but I, I know I, I paid for this, this stock, but there's no not enough money in my account. And so it's just a normal course of action that they did their calculation. They said, we need $3 billion. Of course, there's no way that Robinhood, which is a pretty small broker, could come up with $3 billion. It's not backed by a bank. It's not part, it's not Charles Schwab. Even Charles Schwab would have difficulty coming up with $3 billion in three hours. There's no way they were going to be able to do it. And they were about to be out of business. If they had been out of business, then then the price would have collapsed anyway, right? Because if if your broker tells you, like, I'm sorry, you know, our, we're, we're, we, we've you know, halted all transactions, you know, we'll, you should get your money back when we're wound up in, in a few weeks, then all this action would have would have ground to a halt anyway. Plus, there could have been a cascading panic in the financial system because if one broker goes goes bankrupt, the, jo the job of the clearinghouse is to protect all the other brokers. You know, they, they, they depend on each other. You know, it's a, you know, there's kind of a, a mutual type type relationship that that they have. And so it, it would have been a financial hit to everyone else in the system, perhaps not a devastating one, but it could have been. Could have been. We came fairly. Mohammed Al Arian, you know, spelled out a few days later how dangerous it was and how it could have caused a kind of a cascading crisis in the the brokerage community. Anyway, that's not what happened. They said, okay, how about if we don't allow people to buy anymore? We only allow them to sell. We we don't allow any more options or stock trades in this list of of stocks that you've identified as being most vulnerable. And they came back and they said, okay, in that case, and they did them a favor. They said, that I think it was something like $780 million, which they just barely came up with. They basically raised the money that day. They drew down their bank lines overnight, raised money that day, raised some more money the next week, raised about a billion dollars the, the, at the end of the day in order to cover this margin. But th 
the the conspiracy theory is that they took away the buy button. They didn't allow you to buy. And other brokers also were caught up in this interactive brokers. And people did take away the buy button. Hearing in some, but but they they but they were the most affected by far, and they were the ones that that had the most accounts. So. You could say, hey, this is bullshit. I want to buy more GameStop. I'm going to set up an account at Fidelity. Okay, but Fidelity didn't allow you to set up an account instantly that morning and then start trading the stock, right? They, they're they a normal kind of more prudent broker, not catering to, you know, kind of people who, who are in their in their 20s. You know, they, they cater to people who have a lot more money who are in their 30s, 40s, and 50s who have retirement accounts and and stuff like that. And they, they don't allow you to trade options right away they require you to fill out a paper form and mail it in rather than just filling out some forms online and immediately claiming that you're an experienced investor and trading options. And so they weren't able to continue this momentum and the whole thing collapsed. It did peak briefly that morning and then began to collapse. It was down very, very sharply in the the ensuing trading sessions, which brought an end to the, the initial kind of meme stock squeeze. But it, there's this conspiracy that it was done to to bail out the hedge funds mm-hmm. and, and yeah, I, the people who are short the stock. Circumstantial evidence. There's some coincidences there that that kind of reinforce that notion. I can I can happy to discuss why I don't think so. But you know I have no dog in this fight. I'm not you know on Ken Griffin's payroll. But Ken Griffin of Citadel Securities and Citadel, the gigantic Chicago hedge fund, or now I guess Florida based hedge fund, be moved to Florida, whatever. But you know that he he was seen as some sort of you know kind of eminence grease behind all of this and you know manipulating events and and that's still the the conspiracy theory online is like this vilified figure among the meme stock traders so i i still don't understand the mechanics of why robin hood i i mean i i get that they were under a lot of pressure and so they had to degross and lower their exposure but in terms of the clearinghouse and what they have to do who was the one who said you have to post more collateral it was the clearinghouse and under under what circumstances and explain how that ties in with t plus two which basically means if you buy a stock it's it's not mm-hmm. settled until two days i mean what does it mean to to for something to settle like i bought you know apple today and it, mm-hmm. it says it's in my account as soon as i bought it but it's not settled for two days what does that actually mean what that means is i mean if you go to your whatever broker that you you might use and you say i want to buy 100 shares of, of apple It'll show the money going out of your account, and it'll show 100 shares of Apple in your account, like it happened instantly. But that's that's not the, the way it happens, and that that's never the way that that it happens. There are some financial markets where the transactions are are instantaneous, but for stocks, even though it's dematerialized, I mean, the, there used to be actual stock certificates that had to move from, you know, be stamped and and move from one account to the other, and and there's paperwork involved. Things don't don't settle right away. So the money has you know, come out of your your account, but it's in a stasis and the money hasn't been delivered to the person who sold it to you. Whereas someone on the other side of that transaction, it went through a broker usually or through a market maker, there, there's someone there who who sold a hundred shares of Apple. But they something. they have the money, right? They they sold a hundred that's what, a hundred fourteen they, they don't they do not have the money right away. So they're owed the money. So if you have a hundred shares of Apple in your account right now, Jack, and you and you sell it, then Hundred times whatever the you know the the price of fourteen thousand yeah. sold it, it shows that money is being in your account. Your broker can't call you up and say, you know, that money's not really in your account. It, it shows it as an unsettled trade. If you know you look at it and said, you know, cash awaiting awaiting settlement, you can trade with it. 
you actually can take that that money and trade with it. So your most brokers will will front that money to you, especially if you have a margin account, which uh, Robinhood allowed people to to open rather than just a cash settlement account. You know, you you sold a, a bunch of stock and you have a thousand dollars in your account from a stock you just sold two minutes ago. You could take that thousand dollars and you can buy something else, but you don't really have that money. They're fronting you that money. They have a they have to you know have a a balance of cash. And if that money never arrives because the person who uh, was supposed to have paid for that doesn't actually have the money uh, or their account closed down or they didn't transfer it or whatever, then there needs to be some kind of cushion in there. And this, the, these events were so extreme and so one-sided, so concentrated in a handful of stocks, and, and they need to, there needs to be some, some prudence there. And th- these were reforms that were enacted, by the way, in the wake of the financial crisis. This was, this was part of the whole Dodd-Frank and Volcker and whatever, you know, all, the, all these rules that were done to address the last crisis to make the financial system more stable. They said, okay, well, our calculations show, our risk managers say that you need to put up $3 billion in cash, which was there's no way that they, they could do. They w- would have been out of business. It was 3 o'clock in the morning, California time, 6 o'clock in the morning, New York time, you know, markets open at, at 9.30. So it was barely three hours before the markets open. There's no way to raise that kind of money. Now, as it turned out, people were very willing to give Robinhood money because Robinhood was not insolvent, right? Robinhood was having the best week in its history. It was having a great, great, great week. Its reputation took a, a bit of a hit <laughs> in this episode, but it was having the most profitable week that it had ever had because you had this gigantic surge in trading. And the way that Robinhood gets even though you don't pay anything for trades, it gets paid for trades. And the the stupider the trades you make, the wilder the trades you make, especially if they're options trades, the more it gets paid. Because the way that Robinhood makes money, you know, you don't you don't make money. Jack, you can sell up a, set up a store selling something, even if it doesn't cost you anything. If you sell it for zero, and you have a whole you know staff doing that, you're not going to make any money, right? Robinhood wasn't giving this stuff away for free. It wasn't charging its customers. Instead, it was selling those customers' trades to market makers like Citadel Securities, among others. Citadel Securities was the largest one, still is the largest one, where instead of going to a stock exchange, they said, we'll pay you for this order flow. We, we want to process those orders, and we'll give you at least a good of, of a price as you can get on the stock exchange. But we'll take a little fraction of a penny on each side of the trade because we have very good software and very good, you know, very good computers and very fast computers, and we'll fill that trade, and then we'll pay you a bit and we'll keep a little bit, and so we want as much of your business as you can throw our way, and and that that's what I see as problematic and something not not payment for order flow necessarily, but just the way that that this whole zero commission business is it, it, you know is enabled, and and that that's. That's where I, I see a need for some regulation. As a matter of when I watch a, uh, any sporting event these days, myself or with my sons, I see an additional need for regulation of outright actual licensed gambling because that is all you see. And, you know, you have just an explosion of, of actual gambling going on. And this, I see a very, very fuzzy line between this and that and, and, and a lot of what's going on with crypto exchanges as well. Um, where it's, it's, it's just in, in, in speculators' minds, it's, it's all the same thing. It's all this kind of, you know, kind of get-rich-quick uh, mentality. I don't, I don't see a big, it, you know, it's, in some cases, it's more entertaining than sporting events, right? I mean, so, and, and th- by the way, the explosion in sports gambling and the legalization of it actually, in, in my opinion, played a role in this, in this whole episode. And I can, if you want to 
you know, discuss that later. We can go into that. So when people bought GameStop on Robinhood, so who was, what was Robinhood's exposure when the, before the trades didn't clear? Were they basically like short Robin, short GameStop or? Right. They, they, I mean, I mean, Robinhood doesn't, doesn't take a risk. In, so, then in, why, why, so then why do they have to post collateral? Well, in, because the, the trades have not been paid for yet because Robinhood owed the cash. So, you know, you, you had some cash on your account or some margin borrowing ability on your account that Robinhood provided to you. A lot, it provided margin on very favorable terms to a lot of its customers where basically it would lend you the money. But it only had so much in terms of, of credit lines, or you could you could open an account on Tuesday, January twenty sixth at Robinhood. You know, say I, I heard about this meme stock thing. This is great. I'm going to put all my savings, thousand dollars, which will arrive on Friday, for my bank account. There's a wire here, and now I have a thousand dollars that I can trade with, and I'm going to take the thousand dollars and I'm going to buy options expiring on on Friday that are you know, way out of the money that I'm definitely going to lose money on or very likely to lose money on um, this money arriving Friday. And then I'm going to take other, you know, and then do other trades as well. And so they, they didn't know that they were good for the money. Robinhood did not actually have the cash in its account for those, those people. And when it lent people money on margin, it, it was using its own borrowing lines to provide money to those people. Margin borrowing is it's it's you know there 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 are defaults and Robinhood had a much higher rate of defaults than, than other brokers before this anyway. But it's it's not a very risky business because they lend you money pretty dearly and then they have collateral, which is the stock. So right, so they were long, they were long loans that were collateralized by Robinhood stock, but that that stock was so volatile that you didn't know if you could if you could. Although you could close people out, right? You, I guess I guess that you could, yeah. They, if they if you default, you can close people out. But what if you? What if someone bought uh, stock at at four hundred dollars, and then the stock went to one hundred and ten dollars, like it did two days later? Mm-hmm. Well, well, what's that share of GameStop worth? How much of the loan does it does it cover? Given the but if you, you gave know, if you gave someone a fifty percent loan, couldn't you? So fifty percent loan to value, couldn't you automatically liquidate it when it was two hundred dollars? Or you you could, but there was such a cascade of of selling, yeah. you know, and the stock you know stocks were were frequently halted that it, it wasn't necessarily possible to make yourself whole. I mean, the volatility was such, you know, if you're, if you're the clearinghouse, I, I don't think the clearinghouse is at fault here because, you know, they had these, these rules that were instituted after the financial crisis to make sure that there wasn't this cascading set of losses. And the reason that, that conspiracy theorists kind of have a few threads to, to latch onto, they said, oh, they took away the buy button. I couldn't buy. I could sell, but I couldn't buy. Well, yeah, because of the buying was the, was the problem? They were quite happy if you if you exited the trade. Separately, uh, Gabe Plotkin's fund got a, a financial lifeline that week from Ken Griffin from his hedge- Citadel, the hedge fund, and who also owns Citadel Securities, which was the major benefit for order flow market maker. He was the controlling shareholder of of both of the hedge fund and of the securities firm, which are two separate firms. There's no evidence that they they spoke with each other. There's never been any impropriety there, but it's the same person. It's the same name. Maybe you should have called Citadel Security something else, right? Castle Securities or whatever. Renamed it, right? Because it's you know it 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 seems like even more of a conspiracy that he did it in order to protect his funds' investments because he had he had made a kind of a revenue investment. He had he had given a lifeline 
to Gabe Plotkin's fund, Melvin Capital, and also taken what's called like a revenue, revenue shares, basically. So his, his investment was, would do better if, if Melvin Capital did better. And so there was like, you know- so Melvin, right, Melvin Capital would not do better if the stock continued to go up. And that's also, when did they exit their position? You claim in the book that Melvin Capital and some of the original shorts had fully, or I don't know if you say that, but largely uh, gotten out of their short position before the giant squeeze and that there were other funds who got shorts that they've propelled the, the later squeeze from you know, 100 to, to 400. Tell us about that and sort of the, the sourcing and the, the, when you were writing the book. Yeah, I can't I can't discuss all, all of the sourcing because it's uh, it's a hedge fund and and you know people who spoke to me spoke to me but by the the close of trade on the 26th so 2 days before the the stock peak so it was at approximately half of its peak they were completely out of the trade but they still lost in excess of 6 billion dollars almost 7 billion dollars on on a variety of positions mainly GameStop but also other things because what you had is a, a bunch of dud stocks all, all rose in unison. You also don't expect nearly bankrupt movie chain. You know, the former, you know, BlackBerry, the former maker of, of smartphones that was like totally like a relic then. You don't expect the sort of the, the bankrupt rump of, of blockbuster video. You know, you don't expect Bed Bath & Beyond. You don't expect all these things that have nothing to do with one another except that there's heavy short interest all to rally in unison. Basically, you have people like going on Yahoo Finance or wherever and saying, well, where's the, the highest net short interest? And then piling into those stocks because they saw the same magic repeating. And, and briefly, they, they did. There was a, a maker of wired stereo headphones that, you know, that was the pro- possibly, I think, the best performer that week. You know, it, it was the only thing that these companies had in common was that their business wasn't very good and they had a they weren't making any any profits and there was a, a high amount of, of short interest and funds that you know that look for dud companies and look for offsetting trades happen to be have concentrated positions there. You know there are other people who lost a lot of money too, not just but but Melvin Capital was the was the biggest victim that we know of. Got it. So you say they got out on the twenty seventh or twenty eighth or no the twenty sixth by by, by the close of business on Tuesday the twenty sixth they were they were out. Other book out there that I won't name that has a whole scene where Gabe Plotkin is having a nervous breakdown and doesn't know what he's going to do that night, but that 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 was just a kind of a created scene. They, they did not speak with that that author. They were out of that trade by then. Do you, obviously, some people were still short to get that final squeeze. Who was short? And, you know, like, was it, was it hedge funds? Was it sophisticated retail investors who said, hey, I'll, I'll short the stock? Because you know, if I if I recall correctly, it was very hard to borrow the stock, and I think you know, on some retail brokerages, it was it was impossible to, to borrow the stock. So in the same way that the longs were being shut out, the shorts were as well. The the retails were saying, hey, we're not going to don't don't try and short the stock; it's too risky. You know. Yeah. No, you had a lot of options dealers that 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 were short, for example, that had that had to be short in order to hedge their positions because you had a bunch of this this was this was like a, a real. So you, you you basically you had turnover I think in the in the short position you had a bunch of people who you know after GameStop was up I don't know five hundred percent you had people who went, this is stupid I'm going to short this and make out like a bandit because these kids are are morons and I'm going to you know if you were smart you bought puts you you paid a very rich premium but you bought puts so you used options to to bet on a on a falling price and if you were dumb you you actually located and shorted the stock because you know other people were getting out of the trade and then you you shorted it and so there are other funds that 
you know, that you don't necessarily know about who on that Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday were losing a ton of money. I, I know because uh, they were long puts. Yeah, they they well by either by purchasing puts or by locating a borrow because it was still was possible to locate a borrow and to actually short the stock. If you if you short a, a, a stock conventionally, I you you go and you go to your prime broker if you're a hedge fund and you say I want to locate a borrow and I want to short this stock AMC or GameStop or any of the meme stocks and they can locate a borrow, then you can short the stock, but you're on the hook for infinite losses and you might get stopped out. If you're you're smarter, then you might have and and Melvin Capital, by the way, also had had puts. That that's how that's how they got exposed to this. Mm-hmm. They were it was they were kind of not really known until they they also do their their required public securities filings. Thirteen F disclosed that they had puts on on GameStop that that fall and winter. And puts you have to describe you have to disclose because it's a long position. Where short sales you actually don't have to. That's right. Yeah, short sales you don't have to disclose. Just just the way if you have a small long position you don't have to disclose it. But if you have if you have an options position, then you do need to you know in a long options position exceeding a certain size, then you do have to to disclose it. And so they they did, and so they were identified as a sort of a target. You know, and it was openly being discussed. You can go back to October, November of, of 2020. You can see all kinds of discussions about Melvin and let's screw Melvin and we're going to get these guys. You know, they it, their their positions were not totally transparent, but that was known, and they were also as we know, very, very heavily short the stock itself. But you had new people. As this episode was going on, you had people saying, this can't possibly go on. This thing is up so much. This is going to unravel. These, these kids are, are dummies. And they totally underestimated how far this would go and what a phenomenon it would become. And so they, they also got, some people, those, those people got blown up. But I, you and I obviously know a lot of people on Wall Street. And when my, my book came out or people heard my book was coming out, you know, people who I know personally were like, "Oh, Spencer, this is great. I made three hundred grand buying puts on this thing. This was a gr- what a great week for me." Just people who just had a you know a bit of you know, basically ha- had staying power and weren't didn't get stopped out. You know, made made small fortunes. I know a lot of people who, who made. I wasn't advising anyone to do anything. I'm just a reporter, you know. But I mean, people who after the fact told me how how well they did out of this episode. Most of the people, Jack, who made money on this, were on Wall Street not in mom's basement. Yes. How would you assess the investment record of Wall Street? Bet? Who made money other than, than Keith Gill, who is a uh, you know, deep right. fucking value? There were, there were some folks who followed him into the trade. Obviously, a ton of people, you know, it's yeah. so, so typical, like if there's stock trading at a dollar and five people get in it and then it goes to $20, everyone's going to get in at $20, you know? Right. Like, for example, you know, Everyone's got into oil stocks. Everyone became an oil stock investor when oil right. went to twenty dollars. You know, whereas the people who made well, money got into it when people were talking about oil is not going to exist. You know. Yeah. Well, I'll I'll, I'll tell you who who made money. It's many categories of people who you would you know put under the label Wall Street, right? You had you had Robin Hood. I'm, I'm talking for I'm talking Wall Street. But I'm talking the longs, the people who the longs. Okay. Stocks. Well, oh, yeah. it, it was mostly people who were value investors. Who saw something in GameStop? GameStop wasn't a completely lost cause. You know, it was a very, very, very beaten down stock. So you had Michael Burry of Big Short fame, who took a long position that he disclosed in 2019 in GameStop. You know, he owned about five percent of the stock in, in GameStop, and he had a he had a thesis. 
it didn't he didn't make money because of his thesis maybe he would have if everything had just kind of gone normally and th this wouldn't have turned into an episode that i wrote a book about he might still have made money he might have been right because you know he, he saw it as a cigar but he said it, it was they they can do some things to salvage value in this company it's not a five dollar stock or a you know, it was about a $5 stock when he bought into it, and certainly not a $2 stock. We got down to about two bucks, you know, during the, the height of the, the kind of COVID panic. It's a, it's a $10 stock. I think it's worth twice as much. And that's why I bought the stock. He didn't think it was a $483 stock. And in fact, he, he sold well before it got there, but he made, he made a fortune. And then he said, this is insane, and this is, this is wrong, what's happening with the meme stock squeeze. There was Joel Tillinghast, who was the through his two funds that he had at Fidelity. He's a famous, just recently retired value investor. He owned about 13% of the stock. He, he made a bunch of money, but he sold. He didn't wait for the, the peak. You know, He was like, this is stupid. This thing, once it doubles or triples or whatever, I'm getting out. You know, He's a disciplined, normal investor. You know, He'll just take, take his winnings and not, not push his, his luck. But in the other meme stocks, you also had people who made a lot of money. And you know, also made a lot of money, not traditional longs, but basically insiders in the companies who had options, who had restricted shares that they suddenly unlocked. You had a guy who was on GameStop's board, who was a classic value investor, who fought to get on the board because he wanted to turn the company around. And he and another investor took a big stake. You know, one of the guys said, this is like going to Disneyland. This is so great because he was not the one who got on the board. So he sold out during the meme stock squeeze. The other guy couldn't sell out because he was on the board. It was his bad luck that they're like, okay, you know, you, Kurt, you'll you be the guy who goes on the board. So he had to wait several weeks before he basically resigned from the board and then could sell his stock. It's still at a pretty okay profit, but not as not as high as the other guy who helped vote him onto the board. So we had a bunch of people who were just right place at the right time, who didn't see this coming, but very much Wall Street guys, you know, who who just made out like bandits. And then management who then, after the fact, were cynical, who sold a bunch of stocks to these enthusiastic investors who were waiting for lightning to strike a second, third, fourth, fifth time. AMC being the, the worst offender by far. I mean, we can we can we'll, 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 we'll find out about that, but that's, yeah. that's a whole other you know story. Right? So, I mean, so, so that's people who made money being long the stock. I'd say those are structural longs and strategic longs, value investors, I mean, you can keep Gill in that uh, category, definitely originally, as well as people inside management. I mean, for, you know, I mean, to talk about AMC, just, just real quick, there's a private equity firm that got able to cash out at a ridiculous deal because they were long. So people who got long stock, not because they were trying to squeeze the stock. Well, what I, my next question is people who tried to squeeze the stock and obviously were very successful. How many of those folks were, you know, they, you know, maybe were retired from Wall Street. I mean, there's some sophistication, a lot of sophistication definitely to, to know how to, to squeeze the stock. How many were retail on Wall Street bets? And then how many, I mean, I, you know, now I'm the one who can't disclose my services, but, you know, I, I heard that anecdotally that a lot of funds were, you know, especially high frequency trading firms and volatility trading firms were making a lot of money by, Oh, oh, you know, oh, GameStop went up, we'll bid up AMC. Oh, AMC went up, we'll bid up some other meme stock. And that a lot of institutional money co went the way that went long. And not, and not, you know, it wasn't just Wall Street was long as well as short. Yeah, totally. It, yes, I, I, I agree. I don't have uh, hard evidence to give you dollar amounts of, of who made money, but but I have a lot of circumstantial evidence that tells me that a lot, obviously the money, you know, something goes up from, four to 400 and then back to, you know, back to 20 or 50 or whatever, you know, money's made along the way. The, the, sh the 
shares of this company turned over many, many, many times during this this episode, right? Money's being made and lost. And and I agree. And I, I, I suspect that even in the genesis of this, or maybe once the ball was kind of getting rolling, weeks before we we knew what an ape was or what a meme stock was, there are people in there who were planting, probably even planting the seeds of the idea. If you look at, and I have some of the excerpts in my book, you know, you look at the sort of the people saying, okay, here's how you, this thing is called a gamma squeeze. And this is how you do it. Maybe they didn't call it a gamma squeeze because that'd be too complicated, but they said, this is what you have to do. You know, th- they were pretty sophisticated. They it got was, it. They definitely you know, got it. And they, they got it more than the people who were paid millions of dollars to get it, who were short the options and short the stock. They, yeah. They got it. They definitely, they, it was, they definitely in, covered a cheat code in the financial infrastructure. And it was a, I mean, you tell me a legal cheat code where if there were a bunch of hedge funds doing it, it would be illegal, but they were just some, you know, it was decentralized people posting on, online, not institutional investors. And that that was v- very successful. So I guess so how, what percentage of the people who tries to squeeze the stock got out successfully? Because there were a lot of people who were feeling very, very, you know, smart and successful and had made a ton of money when the stock was at the peak of, you know, over $400. How many people press the sell button? Keith Gill, I think, pressed a which actually I didn't know before reading the book. He pressed the sell button a little bit and sold some, but but held on. And so how many people sold out? Because because wasn't there also a dynamic of oh if you're sell you're a, you're a coward you're you're you know just as them. That. That's where I think it starts to get toxic. That yeah. that's that's right. People, if you, if you ask, well, if you you wait onto one of these message boards and you're like, I'm not selling. I never sold. I held on. It's like this badge of honor to have sold on. But we know that people sold. We know that the probably the majority of people sold out and because it's not a monolith you know you have this this group and i it's like you know if if you have i don't know if you're a member of a, a church or some patriotic group or or some environmental group or something that people feel kind of deeply about emotional at an emotional level right which is then this this really was a, almost like a religion right people who are late adopters people who join late aren't they always the most zealous, right? And so I, I think that this the, the, the point at which this became a movement, those, those are the people who are very likely to have lost money, where they're like, this is a movement, we're going to screw the man, we're going to show them, we're turning the tables. And that was the initial narrative. And, and most people only read a few articles about this. They read the articles that appeared that, that week, which, which had that narrative. They're like, they're, they're, they gave Wall Street a black eye, things will never be the same again. And that's just not true, unfortunately. I, I wish that it were true because it'd make for a much better story. Still a great story, but it'd make for a much, much better story. It made for a good movie, which is in, in theaters now, not based on my book, called Dumb Money. But it's you know th- that that's the, the the narrative. But no, I think that some people who were opportunistic who got in early probably got out in time. Very hard to time these things, obviously. You know, you oh, I made twice my money. Oh, I made four times my money. I made you know, I don't know. At what point do you sell out if you see something going up and up? There are people, you know, look at Isaac Newton, right? Possibly the smartest man who ever lived. He got in on the South Sea bubble. He knew it was BS. He he was already pretty well advanced and everyone was getting rich in, in England in 1720. He bought and then he sold. He doubled his money. And then he just couldn't stand seeing people continue to get rich. And he got in again. And then he lost a bundle. He lost a, a very substantial fortune lost more than he, than he initially made. And it, it set him back for a long time financially. And he's, I, I don't remember the exact word, but I can calculate the movements of the celestial bodies, but not the minds of men. So it, it, it's very difficult to, to resist. There are possibly people who got in and out, who made an initial killing, but then lost money later. 
There's no way to tell. If you go to a cocktail party in your neighborhood, Jack, and you, you talk to people about the stock market, most people will be talking about money they made, not money they lost. So it's very difficult to discern from these online forums who made or lost money. Although there is a really unusual thing about these forums, which is the so-called loss porn. Mm -hmm. Sense that the, on on this forum in particular, it's kind of like a fetish to have claimed to have done done something dumb and lost money. So so maybe that's one the probably one of the few things I kind of really like kind of like admire about this group is they're they're really into talking about their losses too. It's it's a one kind of endearing quality that I see there. Yeah, I, I feel like I have a lot of respect for the movement, the original movement of let's screw over Wall Street and let's make money and then let's be actually prudent investors and let's take advantage of where the Wall Street was way too, you know, it's exposed to soft underbelly hedge funds, shorter stock to 140%. But I feel, and you, you do a great job of highlighting this book, it changed really rapidly because it had something like 300,000 people, but then a week later it had like millions of people and it became an ideology. It became a revolution as your book, you know, the revolution that that wasn't. Talk to us about that change of the old heads who were, you know, have been on this forum since 2018. And then you have this influx of new people. And it's kind of like, you know, you have a, a, a town that there's 50 people there, suddenly they discover gold. And then a year later, there's 10,000 people there. Yeah. And I mean, there's so many, I mean, I'm, I'm personally fascinated by stories of, of bubbles and manias and panics. I always have been. This is different than all of those, right? Because it was a movement. So you, you, you had people, you know, this is traditional, I mean, human nature doesn't, doesn't change. You have fear and greed, but you had something layered on top of it, which was the, I'm doing something good. I'm joining a movement. I'm going to take my little bit of money. I'm going to open a Robinhood account and I'm going to buy some of this stock. I've never had a stock before. This is the first stock I've ever owned. And you, you know, congratulations, you just paid, you know, 500 times revenue or whatever for this, this company, which is, you know, moronic, right? In, in a financial sense. But sorry, so always, and, and I'm sure you agree because you write about it in the book. It became a movement. It was not a movement originally. And as soon as it started to become a movement, that's when people lost money. Like the people who were part of the movement, I'd say, you know, 90, 90% of them made money. Whereas people who were, you know, shrewd investors at the beginning, they, in many cases, if they got out, did phenomenally well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of the crazy part too, is that you can't really view this group as a monolith. Yeah, because the people who viewed it as a movement, in my opinion, I have no, there's no way to, to, to survey people, but in my opinion, just because of, of the timing of the price that they likely paid, you know, if you look at the, the explosion in membership in Wall Street Bets and you analyze the messages and you look at the turnover and you look at the number of brokerage accounts opened during those days, it, it's quite likely that they, the bulk of those people lost money and possibly continued to lose money in the aftermath because their people tried to kind of recreate echoes of this. And that's what's really weird about this is because you had this real nihilistic element. You know, if you look at the the, the age group and you're you're younger than me, Jack, I'm I'll be I'm about to turn 54. If you look at the the age group that participated in this at, at the time was, you know, between the ages of 18 and males between the ages of 18 and 35 primarily. Their formative financial memory was not them, but their their parents or their parents' friends or or whatever losing a lot of money, perhaps losing their homes during the financial crisis, and why aren't the banksters locked up and whatever? I'm not going to get into a whole social commentary over, yeah. you know, where blame should be assigned for the global financial crisis, but that was a, you know, the kind of Occupy Wall Street type sentiment that a lot of them felt, and so 
they they had a very dim view of Wall Street. And in particular, they had a dim view of short sellers because people always have a dim view of them and don't don't really understand what they do. And then on top of that, if you're a short seller of a company, if you're kind of people think that you're purport that you're trying to destroy a company that was a big part of your childhood, like AMC theaters and games, uh, which is a big part of my son's yes. my son exactly in that age range, right? So you're uh, going to short the deli across the street, you know, like yeah. you, you want to put GameStop out of business. What? Yeah. Not that they were going to GameStop anymore. Cause they were like, they wised up. They were like downloading games, you know, on, on onto their, directly onto their PlayStation. They were, they were going and trading games. They, you know, when they were teenagers, they went to GameStop and got like ripped off. They'd go like, Oh, here's my old game. Like how much you give me for it? And then get some credit. And then, yeah, that, that's mainly how GameStop made money is all this sort of these physical discs that, that these these teenagers would go in and trade in and then get you know get basically very little credit for and then and then use it to purchase you know new merchandise or whatever you know so that they they weren't even doing that anymore but you know but hey GameStop is part of my childhood you're trying to destroy it and you're a short seller and you're a greedy hedge fund you know you just hit the trifecta I hate you and I'm going to open an account and it was this real nihilistic kind of thing which is which is different than any of these other bubbles that you'll study studying financial history. Mm -hmm. And now we have the element of the influencers. We have Chamath Palihapitiya, Elon Musk, and Dave Portnoy. Tell us about how impactful they were. I mean, just how much kerosene did they pour on this this fire? And uh, obviously, the counterfactual will we'll never know. But you know, would it, it would have been a lot less? You think if they, we didn't have these, these tweets out? And and also, you know talked with not as the uh, you know editor of her on the street or you in the book you have a pretty objective tone but i want your your real opinion of, of, of i want your judgment you know so don't hold back yeah it's 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 impossible to to go in and recreate history as you said no in my opinion and and you can see it from the the actual uh, market reaction at the time right elon musk in particular but chamath for sure going on cnbc and through his tweets and Dave Portnoy, who had a very substantial social media following of young men in this cohort who were active day traders and active in this, all three of them, I believe, had a very substantial impact of egging people on because they wanted to be with the, the cool kids. They wanted to, you know, to sow a little chaos. I mean, I don't know. I, I think that like you can, you know, when you, we, when you unravel the threads of some, you know, big jump in some stock or something goes on financially and you look at who made money, who profited, right? I mean, if you're like a detective, you're like, well, who, who profited from this thing? That's, that's the person I'm going to going to look for as a possible culprit. I don't think that any of them necessarily profited financially in a direct way from this, but it helped their brand and your brand matters a lot. And in particular, I think that psychically they benefited from it. They were, they were the cool kids. They were on the right side. They were on the side of justice. They were, they were sticking it to the man. But those guys, they're all millionaires or billionaires. You know, two of them are billionaires. One is a, I think, maybe just Dave Portnoy might still just be a mere millionaire. But they're already very wealthy people. And they were doing it, you know, for the, the laws, basically, you know, and for the, you know, to, to enhance their brand. The bigger your brand, the more you're worth these days. And you know who the one influencer is who, who didn't stoke things on purpose? The only person who got investigated, by the way, was Roaring Kitty himself was uh, was at the center of this because he could have come out. He was so much the center of attention. He, when even when he was anonymous, he could have said, "Oh, here's the next stock." He could have bought some way out of the you know money 
you know, call options on any thinly traded stock and said, and just all he would have to do was have a screenshot of his brokerage account showing his position. People were tuning in every day to see that he still held on. If you had seen, you know, uh, out of the money call options on dog food company, whatever, you know, they would have gone through the roof. He, he would have made a hundred or a thousand times his money. So he he left a fortune on the on the table by being on being much more honest than these billionaires, in, in my opinion. He he he's a clearly a very smart guy. He understood what he could could do, and he didn't abuse his power. Right. Do you have any sense? So he he sold some contracts at the top, and I was surprised because I would have thought if he sold some contracts that people would have turned against him, but no, no one no one did. No, because he kept on holding on and holding on. And every day people are like, holy crap, he's still there. He's got balls of steel, you know, and then you just go, you can go and look at all, all the, these messages. And I, you know, I, some of the kind of the more kind of PG rated ones are, are, are in my book and some of them are, are, are not. And a lot of people went back and actually deleted their, their messages too. So it's not all there. It's archived, but it's not, it's not as easy to find, but yeah, people were just so impressed. They're like, well, hats off to him. Even when he when he sold over two days, a large part closed out part of his, his options position. People were like, "That's okay, that's cool," but some of his options, he you know because you you can you can settle it for cash, but you also can convert into shares. He had a lot of shares at the end of GameStop, so yeah. he, he became a substantial owner by as late as that April when he kind of went off you know radio silent of GameStop. So he he stayed in there. And probably I think there was so in the money. Like they're, they're never call up op- call options are, are never as in the money as those those were. So it's pretty much is like he owned a hundred shares. So it's you're, you're never supposed to exercise an option, but probably the option value is not that much when you're you know the stock's at four hundred and you're you you're, the strike price is at you know 20. 12, 12 bucks. Yeah, right? twelve bucks. I mean, twelve. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, he did he did very very well. He almost perfectly timed it, and then he held on to tens of millions uh, of dollars in in, in shares that. He, he didn't really need to. He could have just walked away with much more money. I, I suspect he, he's, you know, he's, he's different than these people too that who, who are on these boards because he's a chartered financial analyst. Not that he was like, you know, of Wall Street. He was working basically writing financial advice stuff for Mass Mutual. You know, that was, you know, that was his job before he resigned during the week of the meme stock squeeze wisely. He was registered as a financial advisor. So his, 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 he was investigated, and then his his employer had to pay a fine for not. What's he up to these days? What has he been doing since since then? I think that he could he could easily because he, he likes it. He could he could easily emerge as a sort of someone who bridges these worlds. Who's a kind of a classic, you know, kind of value investor and go in and and run a fund, kind of Michael Burry style, and and someone who can speak to to his generation. He was thirty four at the time that this all happened, so he's very much in the kind of the age cohort, at the upper end of it. But you know, his use of memes and everything. You know, he was he's funny. You know, he's you know, he knew exactly how to how to span those worlds. But go, the videos are all still online, and you can you know he has hours long discussions that like maybe 20 people were listening to at the time, you know, now they're sort of, they've been, been viewed a lot, but at the time, you know, we had very few people live on these, especially in the early days. He was just, just a curiosity. So I know no one's listening to this, but you know, and he, he'd talk about Aswath Damodaran and, you know, the value guru. No, I don't think that's a real household name on, on wall street bats, you know, right. I mean, so yeah, he's, he's an amazing character in, in my opinion, who, who could, re-enter the financial world and just, you know, just on name recognition alone, raise a ton of money. 
and and probably deservedly so. Yeah. Was there ever any ever any hint from him that he thought this was getting out of control? I know Michael Burry said something publicly. He said, "Hey, look, I'm out of the stock, and this has gone way beyond proportions." I mean, because you know, Keith Gill, he's a, he's a smart guy. Something can't go up forever. You know, people thought, "Oh, is that 400? It'll go to a thousand. Yeah. If it had gone to a thousand, then people would say it's gone to that. But it has to stop, and you know, a crash was going to be imminent, and people were re- listening to him. I mean, I would feel a lot of pressure if, and, you know, this is a, a good part about you know both of our jobs is that mm-hmm. no one like listens to us for <laughs> advice, particularly about small. You know, I, if I you know, there's a small stock small right. that you know I got in, and then it went twenty x, and then everyone said, "Oh my God, Jack's been, Jack and Spencer were so successful. I'm going to take it in the stock." I would feel a lot of pressure and I would want to say, Hey, like, let's, let's chill out here. Don't, you know, don't follow me. Like I, I'm doing it with my money. You do it with your money. But was there any, every sense where he kind of, and he never egged people on, but where he's, he, you know, no, there never was. No, I think I, in, or, uh, until, until December when, you know, this wasn't in the headlines at all, it was just really being discussed on, on message boards. Cause it was already kind of building up some nice momentum, probably not past the point of no return in terms of turning into the meme stock squeeze, but getting getting very, very close to that. He was he was explicitly stating his his reasons. He was like he was saying, I think this could be a short squeeze. Uh-huh. I, and then he kind of went radio silence in terms of commenting on it. And he, he just posted his screenshotted his e-trade statement, basically, once a day. There was a time where he posted the Forrest Gump meme, right? Or was that after? That was before. That was before. Okay. okay. Before, yeah, and so yeah, he was he was just posting memes and stuff like that, and then he even slowed down with that. He just he just got basically just once what, during the thick of it when it was in the headlines. I mean, it must have been a very strange feeling for him. He would just once a day, people were waiting for him, and the fact that he was still in it as it was ramping up and up, and he already had life changing money. He already had, you know, he had taken fifty three grand and turned it into, you know, forty million at one point. And I think he probably had turned it into about 70 million intraday at one point. Mm-hmm. That's, that's pretty good. You know, I mean, it's, it's a thousand times your money, you know, and, uh, you know, it, it, I think that he, he, he was wary of explicitly saying, buy this. All he was doing was giving what's called social proof. And social proof is a very, very powerful thing where you say, well, I'm doing that. That's how influencers work at the end of the day, except he wasn't, you know, he wasn't doing anything special other than just saying, I still own it. Checking in, end of the day, after the market's closed, I still own it. He was doing it aftermarket hours too. Mm-hmm. And so t- t- the week after, the, that's a, the, the months after the squeeze, it collapsed in value and then recently reaccelerated and that gave some hope to it. Tell us about the, the aftermath. There are a lot of people who didn't give up hope. And I mean, there are people still to this day who will say, that you know the AMC stock is sold three hundred percent short, and you know Wall Street's comparing. There's a short ladder attack. Tell us about. We talked about the, the evolution of the that community. Tell us, you know, starting in February 2021 on, onwards, what has happened and what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I mean that that to me is like a really crazy thing about this is. I mean, I knew within ten minutes of of seeing this as it was was unfolding that I wanted to write a book about it because I thought it was like a just a something that you know, a financial phenomenon completely. I had no clue that years later, a couple of years later, we would still be talking about, you know, the reverberations of it, or people have these, really they're conspiracy theories. They're not, there's not 300% short interest. There's not going to be, you know, if you, if you Google MOAS, it's not a dirty word, M-O-A-S-S, hashtag M-O-A-S-S, 
I encourage readers to go and mother of all short squeezes, mother of all short squeezes. Yeah. Kind of like Saddam Hussein meets the stock market, right? I don't know what to say. I mean, it's, it's the, the logic that, that people are, are using to point this out. They're taking some real numbers and piecing them together in a way that, that are, are difficult to understand or not that difficult to understand and pointing a picture of sort of, you know, you could justify anything that way. You could say the, the earth is flat or whatever. I mean, there are people who believe that, but it, there's there's not going to be a mother of all short squeezes. There's not some, obviously there's this high short interest in these names because they're, they're puffed up, right? And so there are always people who are saying, well, I think this is just stick a fork in it. I mean, AMC, you would have done really well if you had, had shortered AMC as the day that we're speaking, you know, some, sometime earlier. And so there, you know, there, there is actual short interest, but there's not some kind of conspiracy where there's shorts or synthetic shares or whatever people are talking about that have never covered. And so this, this into a kind of man on the grass, you know, kind of thing, you know, where people just won't let it go. And yeah, I mean, so much premium was burned as well. Not people, you know, they bought AMC. It's not just they bought AMC at $100 and now it's at 10. It's they bought calls for it at 200 and they they paid so much for it because the implied volatility was was so high. Where does the, the movement stand today? What What is the current state of the APE movement, given the tremendous fall in prices? You know, I mean, GameStop, the fall has been large, but in AMC, I mean, that you really have had a momentous drop. Yeah. No, I mean, if I, if, I, if I tell you to do something that's outright gambling, right, and to keep on doing it, go to this casino. If you keep betting on black or you keep betting on red 23 or, or what have you, it's gonna, I just know it's going to work because I have this convoluted theory of why it's going to work. Some people will make money. And occasionally, you know, every other time or so lands on black or every once in a while lands on red 23. And so obviously there, there are people in spots who will will make money listening to this really bad financial advice by people who are sort of just just doing it really just for the influence you know or for the views or for the subscribers on on various social media channels or maybe they really believe it i don't know some people actually do believe this stuff but but yeah it's it's a way to burn up a ton of money and especially if you're doing it through the options market because the options market is already a sucker's bet you know if you purchase options whether they're call or put options, and in particular, if you're purchasing options in something that's very volatile, because the volatility, these stocks are all very volatile, and the volatility is is part of the price. You're you're paying quite a bit of money. It doesn't seem like a lot of money, but I mean, if you does, it doesn't seem like a lot of money when you buy a two dollar two dollar lottery ticket five times a week for your entire life, and then you're like, wow, I just spent seventy grand during my working life on lottery tickets, right? I mean, it's it it adds up, and and that's kind of what's happening is you have these these long shots with poor payoff odds occasionally people are are holding a gigantic check and you know and 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 are being interviewed on TV but but most often they're they're not making money the math is is not very different than than lottery tickets they're they're literally buying lottery tickets if you look at the options clearing corporation data there has been an explosion in the most volatile type of options. And not just that the options turnover has risen a lot, but retail options turnover and specifically things like zero day options, options that expire during the day. There is no reason to buy stuff like that. That is that is a, a pure gamble. There is no there's no valid financial reason to buy an out of the money call or, or put option expiring during the day unless you have some specific event. Like maybe 
if there's a Fed meeting and you're expecting Powell to say something, you know, to pull off his mask and, you know, and it's Vladimir Lenin, you know, under there and he's whatever, you know, right? Something just bonkers, right? Unless you're bonkers. a crazy event or you're, you're positioning for some, you know, earnings event and you have a, a, a very keen insight or you're just protecting yourself from volatility, there's no reason to make short-term bets like that. They're, they're over time they're they're going to be losing bets and the options industry is very very happy to take your money they're hedged they don't care they they're happy you showed up same thing with Robinhood. same thing with with citadel securities and it's virtu and its competitors that are market makers they are just in the transaction business they're not in the risk-taking business and those are the people who made the most money on wall street during this whole episode and all the ensuing echoes of it are people who are just very very happy that a bunch of chumps Sorry to call them chumps, but a bunch of chumps showed up with their their hard-earned money and gambled it and mostly didn't make money. They don't really care if you do or don't make money. It's not their, you know, they like it when you make money. The casino likes it. When you jump up and down and like whatever and make a big deal and lights go off and a bunch of coins spill out or whatever happens these days in the casino, I haven't been to one in a while, and you're like really, really happy, the casino lost money that second to you, but you're like, that's the kind of, kind of advertising that money cannot buy. You jumping up and down and making a big deal about it and putting it on social media because then, you know, five more people show up thinking that it could be them. Yes, but the uh, retail investors who bought short-dated call options on, you know, low-quality companies, companies that are, you know, Warren Buffett would not invest in. Yeah, we both know what we mean, what I mean. that There could not have been a worse time to do that than... April 2021 to let's say October 2022 because mo- you know companies like Apple and, and Facebook and they went down as well and speculative stocks I mean like you know the ARK ETF unprofitable technology stocks just had a horrible year as the Federal Reserve froze interest rates so what is the state of the apes now or what was it maybe in October 2022 at the, the bottom of the bear market of 2022. And now that we're, you know, in a somewhat more rosy bull market, you know, pretty close to the S&P 500 to all-time highs, but on those speculative stocks, very, very far away. What is the state? I mean, how different is it in, in terms of, are people still buy, buying a lot of these short-dated call options? Because I'll, I'll note that I think a lot of the one-day options, the one, one-day options for the S&P, I think those are like actually institutional investors who are just trying to get a little yield. Some of, some of that, yeah. There, there, there are, there, 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 there are, yeah, there, there are people who are pursuing sophisticated financial strategies in order to extract yield. But we, we know that there has been a big rise in, in retail participation in the options market. And I, a lot of people don't understand what they're doing, or they do understand what they're doing, but they have a very poor assessment of their odds. And there, of course, there are people who, look, my dad and my father-in-law were but you know, both came to this country like literally with their shirts on their backs and, you know, had very little money and both of them happened to play the lottery and were totally equipped mathematically to understand that it's a losing game. They didn't waste a lot, a lot of money on it, but you need to dream. And so I understand the the psychology. I don't want to denigrate anyone. You know, the, the people will talk about the lottery and uh, say that it's a tax on a numeracy or whatever. And it, it isn't really necessarily in a lot of cases because people want to have this sort of, you know, this one kind of feeler out there where like, you know, maybe their their life can turn around and their life can be easy, whereas it's always been very hard and they've always had to 
to struggle. And it's a small amount of money and you got to have a dream. And so I think that there's a numeracy for sure in retail participation in these, like these, these options where they're, you know, 60 or 70% of the time you're going to lose money. But there's also this sort of, you know, wanting to hit kind of a lottery ticket type payoff. It's, it's addictive. And it, in, by the way, and I, this wasn't the case like with my dad or my father-in-law, but in you know three four percent of the population, there's there's a a natural tendency to become addicted to the gambling element of it, and whether it's stocks or what's legally considered gambling, like like betting on the spread on the Giants game, it's gambling. You know, if you're you're betting on something or you have no special insight, you haven't done any analysis, you're not an investor. You're 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 completely speculating. I don't really see much difference between it happening under the auspices of the New York Stock Exchange or the CBOE and happening on on DraftKings and happening in the kind of a sports book. It's it's the same psychology. It's a very destructive psychology for some small percentage of people who who engage in it regularly. That's a really sad thing about gambling, by the way, is that you know there there are people who are addicted to gambling who will their entire lives will kind of fritter away their savings. They'll go and make more money and they'll fritter away their savings and hurt their relationships and spend their kids' you know, money they should be spent saving for retirement or their kids' college or whatever on, on gambling. But at least when it was a casino in a couple of cities in America, they could stay away or, or their relatives could keep them away. Now it's on smartphones everywhere. You can't really escape it. If you've developed an addiction, whether it's to gambling through on financial instruments or on on you know, roulette or whatever, it's very hard to escape if you, you can, it's just so easy to download into your smartphone and set it up. And the bear market, this is a permanent phenomenon or, or unfortunately a you know, permanent phenomenon that will, in a bear market, in a, in a bull market, you know, it'll be more extreme in a bull market, but it's not as if the bear market of 2022 killed the gambling spirit. No, 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 I don't think so. No, I think it, it dampened it. I think there, I mean, there are people who sort of said, you know what, I learned my lesson. I'm just going to buy index funds and not check my account. You know, the less fre- we 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 know for a fact, the less frequently you trade, the less frequently you you even look at your financial accounts, the better you'll you'll do. There's an inverse correlation between activity and attention and and and, and performance. And so there there are people who definitely learn their lesson. You'll you'll talk to people who are very kind of sober minds today and if you get them, you know, a few beers into them, they'll tell you some dumb dumb thing they did early in their career. And I can tell you about some dumb things that, that, I, that I did when I first had a little bit of money and opened up a, a brokerage account. I mean, like just really asinine stuff that I, I'm kind of embarrassed to talk about. But I mean, it's, it was kind of a formative experience for, for, for me. And I can think back on that. And it was kind of a good tuition, right? I mean, it didn't cost me that much money because I didn't have that much money. And it kind of has, has informed me into the kind of prudent, boring guy I am today. And I mean, I can't do that because I, I write for the Wall Street Journal and can't, you know, can't gamble on the stock exchange and I don't gamble on other things. But yeah, I mean, it's, there, there, there are definitely some people who sort of, they open up, the, the good thing that happened is that this got them to open a financial account and know how to buy a stock. And then now they're on the kind of straight and narrow or will soon be on the path to it. But a lot of people turned into sort of degenerates. And the you know what the worst thing is, is that most people are not degenerates and not on the straight and narrow. Most people are somewhere in between. They open a financial account and they said, you know what, Wall Street is rigged. This is a, it's a crooked place. And they took away the buy button and it's a conspiracy. And it's, you know, heads we win, tails you lose. 
And so I'm staying away from this place. And that's a really sad thing too, because the only way you can really kind of, you know, build up a big nest egg other than kind of starting a business or maybe investing in real estate is, is, is investing in financial instruments like stocks and bonds. It's, it's the most transparent, available, straightforward way to do that. And the fact that a lot of people see Wall Street as inherently crooked, which it is, it is not inherently crooked, in my opinion, and won't participate now because of this, the, you know, that, that they're leaving a lot of money on the table in terms of just foregone savings because they're not participating. That's, that's bad too. That's the worst thing of all. Right. And yeah, Wall Street, not inherently crooked, but encouraging this gambling because it makes them a lot of money. Yeah. You know, the one, you know people accused uh, Robin Hood's representatives. This is like real chutzpah, in, in my opinion. Uh, they they came out and they they attacked Charlie Munger and, and Warren Buffett, 90-something-year-old billionaires for basically calling it, you know, rat poison and, and whatever. You know, they not only do they have nothing to gain by stating very clearly that this is like, you know, this is a very destructive financial habit that people have, you know, betting on these meme stocks and betting on SPACs and betting on all these very speculative financial things that entered our financial lives in the last few years and crypto also. Not only do they not have anything to gain by by saying that, but they actually have something to lose. Because if you're Warren Buffett, why, why is Warren Buffett Warren Buffett? What, you know, finance is a zero sum game. In order for Warren Buffett to have made you know, many multiples of the S&P 500's return, you have to have someone else who is on the losing side of, of all those trades, who is basically contributing to his, his fortune, right? And it's people who are impatient and, and poorly educated and, and, and what, or, or just unlucky in, in many cases. You know, you, you don't make the money without someone losing. Wall Street is very, very happy that these people showed up. They're, they're mostly staying pretty quiet about the, the arrival of this, this young, very speculative generation, because it's a great thing for Wall Street. Right. As I say, Warren Buffett is benefiting, and Berkshire Hathaway shareholders, benefiting from mispricings of people selling banks in 2009 or you know, selling Coca-Cola in 1994. Like the people who are benefiting directly from the retail speculation orgy boom, to use the, the Charlie Munger quote, is, are these Virtue Financial, Citadel, and Robinhood. Spencer, so Robin, I took a look at their quarterly presentation, and what do you know that right now their biggest revenue driver is not transactions, it's not options volumes, it is interest income. So the biggest line item for the top line revenue for, for Robinhood is not a casino, it's now a bank. What, what does that say about that, that business model? I mean, because this speculation has gone down. 80% from you know, January 2021, but down 80% is still up you know, 500% from normal levels. Right. Well, well, one thing it tells you is that interest rates, overnight interest rates in this country went from uh, 0% to 5.25%. So you know, there's, there actually is interest again to be, to be earned, which is a really important uh, component of the earnings of uh, a Charles Schwab or anyone like that, where, where their clients actually have a lot of money. And Robinhood is turning into a normal broker. They're going to offer IRAs and stuff like that. They're, they're making money on, on cash balances. They're making money on, on margin lending and stuff like that, which is really is the way that brokers make money. You know, when they, when they like the Charles Schwab and all those guys were, were really worried when they took commissions down to zero, but even then in late 2019, they weren't making a lot of money on commissions. That's not how brokers make money anymore. They make money on, you know, offering you all kinds of financial services and offering you a credit card with rewards and, uh, and holding your money and, and give paying you too little for it, you know, 
or lending you margin. That's that's the the revenue model of of all these firms. So Robinhood is a little bit more like a normal broker now than the kind of YOLO broker. Unfortunately, it's difficult for them to make a lot of money because their their customers they have a lot of accounts. It's expensive to maintain an account. Not really expensive, but it does cost money. There's a, you know IT and overhead and admin and stuff like that. So they, they, they don't give you a lot of support. Obviously, you can't, it's very hard to call up Robinhood and talk to a person. If you have 20 bucks in an account, then, you know, they're not going to, they're not going to really, really help you a lot. The only way for the problem is for the 20 buck person to speculate. A 20 bucks, you know, buying VOO, which has a Vanguard ETF for SP500 SP that has three basis points, it's not a profitable. They need that person. But here's how you stick it to the man, Jack. You, yeah. you buy VOO and you forget about it, right? You forget you own it, right? That's because they still have to honor your account. They still have to keep it open. It costs them a few bucks a year to keep your account open, and they're earning like a few cents a year off of you. They're not even earning a few cents a year off of you. They're like some fund companies is earning it, and they're getting it rebated. They made money the one time you bought VOO, and they'll make money the one time you sell VOO, which is like a fraction of a penny, you know? So you want to stick it to the man, then then be be boring like me, you know? And that's, that's really how you... If you're nihilistic and you want to hurt Wall Street, you could actually do it. It's like a twofer. You can make money and, and stick it to the man, right? I mean, by by just being totally passive, you know, and, and low cost. It's it's not as exciting, you know. You can't brag about it on on TikTok or on Reddit, but it's that that's the actual way to kind of you know pull one over on Wall Street is they they have to provide you with this account. It wasn't possible a long time ago. You know, all these charts they show you. If you had invested $100 in 1926, it would have compounded into no it wouldn't have because just reinvesting the dividends cost money. There was no index fund. You couldn't whatever, right? I mean, that's not really true. And they would charge you would have had to have a ton of money just to open a brokerage account by 1926 standards. But today it's possible because and and you know who's covering your expenses is all the people who are very active, you know. That those are the people who are we're making it or leaving cash uninvested or whatever. Like those are the people who subsidize the brokers and you can be the, the, the kind of economic free rider on all that stuff. So uh, explain, I have two more questions. Explain for me this paradox where over the past 20, 30 years, you know, the Jack Bogle revolution, people are allocating to S&P 500. They've been learning that, oh, I'm paying a very small fee. I'm not trading in, trading out. I'm exposed myself to these behavioral foibles. So I think now you know, over 50% of at least US dollars invested in the stock market is passively managed. So, you know, if you know, Apple has a good quarter, bad quarter, someone posts something on Reddit, they don't care. They're just I'm owning it and it's it's methodical. Explain how, at the one hand, we've had this boom in passive, so it's not trading in, trading out, but on the other hand, we have this orgy of speculation. How can those two things exist at the same time? Because it's not the same, not the same people in psych, human psychology. You know, you can say that like people learn their lesson, right? You could say people learned their lesson in 1929, right? You had a whole generation that was scarred where like in 1932, you know, the, well, the predecessor to the S&P 500 didn't exist yet, you know, was trading at like five times earnings and had a seven and a half percent dividend yield. I mean, what, you know, it was like, what a fat pitch, you know, just to put your savings into it. And and don't worry about the ups and downs. Don't worry that there was not the recession in 1937. Don't worry about World War II. Don't worry about anything. You just, you know, own a bunch of blue chip stocks and you, you would have made a complete fortune. But no one did, or very few people did. Obviously, someone bought stocks, you know, but you, you had a generation that was permanently scarred. It wasn't until 
1950s when you had a completely new generation that you had a new bull market begin. And so that's part of the explanation for why these, these cycles recur is that it's different people or people with short, relatively short memories or, or the, the devastation wasn't deep enough to completely dissuade people. You know, there are people who would have like, maybe they lost their shirts last year and now they're, they're tiptoeing back into the water and they're buying Arm or Instacart or whatever on the day of its IPO, 30% above the, the IPO price because, of course, they couldn't get allocation. So there's, oh. there's, there's a never-ending supply uh, of people who think, despite the evidence, whether or not they understand the evidence, that they can outsmart Wall Street or that they can pay someone. And it's very alluring. People who say, give me your money. Yeah, can outsmart Wall Street. I can. Wall Street can't well, outsmart Wall Street. Well, a few few people can, but I think there's a there's a oh, very tiny yeah. slice of of people who have actual skill in investing, and there are people who are lucky. You know, if you had had invested money with the the fund manager of the decade a decade ago, you would have done really really badly. I mean, even like a pretty long, what seems like a pretty long track record, is is very difficult statistically to differentiate from from luck. And maybe they actually were good and they just had bad luck this, this, this decade. It's really, really, really hard to tell. But people are very prone to believe that skill exists, that they have skill, that, they have, that they'll be different, that they have some special insight. And so, yes, I mean, the fact that, that passive investing has grown so much is, is really a, a threat to Wall Street's money machine. But they found other, other vehicles including the you know most recently the meme stock squeeze and and drawing in all these young investors uh, not that they did it deliberately but I mean of course the advertising was was very much geared towards drawing those people in please go on YouTube and look at the you know the historical uh, you know ads for all the these brokers or go back and look at the e-trade ads which are still online from the dot-com boom my favorite ad is some guys the stockbrokers broken down on the side of the road. And the truck driver comes and picks him up. His sport, like steam coming out of his <clears throat> his sports car, and you know he he's got like a, you know t- barons open because there's no you know you can't trade on, on there's no smartphones yet. Because oh, you trade stocks online? Says, yeah, yeah. You know I do a bit. You know a, a customer of E Trade. You know goes yeah. That's a, that's a and what's that picture? Like it's like oh, it's a picture of my island. You know technically it's a country. You know. And, you know, basically how like this guy who's just kind of picking people up for fun, who's made so much money that he's outsmarted this slick Wall Streeter. That's always the dream. That's that that is a message that's been repeated again and again and again. You know, you can you can do it, you know, you know, put your chips on the table. And so, I mean, casinos are not allowed to do that because you you actually have a, a proven losing record in casinos. But, you, you, you know, you're not like a lot better. I, I always hesitate to call Wall Street a casino because it isn't. It's obviously it's a place to allocate capital and stuff like that at its core. Uh, so f- final question for you, Spencer, is do you think there's going to be another GameStop, another AMC? And if not, why? Has there been new regulations, changes to market structure? Or is it just that the market makers for you know short dated call options are going to sell it at a 200 vol instead of a 40 vol? So the, the, you know, the, the snowball never turns into an avalanche. Yeah, I think it was a very unique set of circumstances. I think that there will be many mini ambushes, so many small versions of it, and there already have been. 
where someone on Wall Street got caught on the wrong foot and had to scramble or got blown up and had to cover their shorts. But I think that the, the, the people who allocate money on Wall Street have really wised up and they understand the, the power of social media today. And so it, it will be much more difficult to like have like an open ambush where openly discuss, hey, we're gonna jump on this guy and talk about it for weeks and weeks and weeks and spell out exactly how you're gonna do it and then still get away with it and do it. Like that, that's not gonna happen again. Got it. Well, Spencer, thanks so much for, for joining us. Again, your, your book is The Revolution That Wasn't, GameStop, Reddit, and the Fleecing of Small Investors. Thanks for, for coming on and thanks everyone for listening. Thanks for having me.